Well, again, thank you so much for, for being here uh, with us this morning. Uh, it's fun to see uh, these families, these kids. Fun, fun for us as a church to be able to partner with them, uh, all of us. And whether, whether you have kids or not, whether you're married or single, uh, no matter who you are, your stage of life, um, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, and there's, there's family here uh, for all of us, um, regardless of those things. And so we're glad that you're with us. Let me, let me pray for us as we continue our time in the Gospel of Matthew here. Let's pray. God, we, um, we need for you to speak to us, to do that through your word written down so long ago, but also, God, to do that through your son who is so clearly on display and through your spirit at work within us. And so, God, we ask that we would be attentive. God, where we need comfort, bring that. Where we need to be rebuked and challenged, God, we need that too, and we ask you to do it. God, I pray that we would be receptive to these things so that we could live as the people that you've called us to be in your world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so I, I know it's a bit outdated, maybe even a little, well, not a little. It's, it's a lot sentimental. And it's way past Christmas. But nevertheless, one of, one of my all-time favorite movies is It's a Wonderful Life. I, I mean, I just love this movie. We have this poster, like, hanging in our, in our family room together. It's just one of, my, one of my favorites. And if you don't know the story, like both of you here who don't know the story, let me, let me just kind of really quick because probably you've seen it, but George Bailey, right, he's, he's wondering if his life matters, if anything counts, right, and he's asking, like, would anyone miss me if I'd never been born? And of course, an angel, like, comes to the rescue and shows him how beautiful his life has been, and we all cry at the end, and, you know, we all try then to, to live our own wonderful lives as a result. It's a great movie. So I had a, I had a depressing thought this past week, Shocking, um, I'm sure, for some of you, if you know me. Um, and I wondered, what if we did the same experiment for us? Like, as, as Christians, the church. Would anyone miss us? I mean, if we were to all sort of just disappear without a trace, would anyone even care? So, so like, for example, if we were to, to go out of here later this afternoon and start talking to our, our neighbors around here and, and say to them, you know, that, that little little red brick church over there on the corner. Would you miss it if it was gone? Or if you were to say to your, to your classmates, kids, or, or to, your, to your coworkers, is the world better or worse with the church? Would anyone actually miss us? It'd be an interesting little poll, right? I'm not sure it'd be a, a very fun exercise for us. And I get it. Would anybody miss us? I mean, even just... Think about the many different ways that we as Christians um, interact within our culture or within our world. I mean, think of, think of all the extremes and all the different, different approaches. I mean, from, from the, the, sort of the one extreme of, of there, there are Christians who live so separated from anyone else, they don't even use electricity, right, or, or drive in cars. And then on the other hand, you, you've got Christians who, frankly, are absolutely indistinguishable from anybody else. They don't, they don't look a bit different. And then you've got so-called Christians who are so angry they pick at funerals, right? Or you have others who you'd swear are, are more interested in gaining political power than, than actually following Jesus, right? And still others who try to create their own little Christian ghettos with Christian music and Christian movies and, and mu uh, books and t-shirts and institutions and businesses and almost, almost as if the goal of life is if you don't ever have to encounter somebody who thinks differently from you. I mean, is it any wonder this question is so infuriating? 
would anyone miss us? Because to so many, Christians either seem completely irrelevant, ridiculously angry, obsessed, and power-hungry, or just plain weird, right? And, and so many of you here who aren't Christians, okay, let me just say, first of all, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, at, at the very least, you keep us honest, Right? Um, you help point out these things to us, the ways in which we, we fall short, because we, we often do. And so if you're not a Christian, thanks, thanks for being a part of this, this morning and, and a part of this, this community. But if, if that describes you, you might be thinking like, yeah, what's, what's wrong with these people? Why is there this incredible disconnect? I mean, honestly, it's, it's one of the reasons I hate telling people I'm a pastor. I mean, like in a, in a strange setting where people don't know me, because I mean, it's, not, it's not that I, I'm ashamed of what I do or ashamed of the things that I believe in. It's that out of context, the word Christian means so many different things to so many different people, and not, not all of them are good. And we know it shouldn't be this way. I mean, even in the words that we just heard read, right, Jesus lays out pretty clearly what it looks like, what it ought to look like for us to live within a world like ours. He calls it salt and light. Probably familiar metaphors to many of us if you've spent any time in church. But what does it actually mean? Well, we're going we're to see three things from these metaphors this morning. Of who, of who Jesus expects or, or calls us to be in this world. If we're going to be missed, first, we have to be different in a good way. We have to be present in the darkness, and we have to be together in his name. But first, let's, let's set a little bit of the context here. So we're in Matthew chapter 5. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to, to turn there with us or on your phone, or we'll have it on the screen as, as well. But we are still in the very beginning stages of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We're walking through Matthew together, the whole book together as a church, and we're kind of in this spot, Matthew 5 through 7, this, this most famous sermon of all. And in this sermon, Jesus is going to tell us what this looks like. In fact, many would say that we're still just in the, his sermon introduction, right? That he hasn't even really gotten warmed up yet. He's just giving us the backdrop of what he's going to be telling us and them for these next three, three chapters. He's going to show us what it looks like. And so you've got to picture Jesus, right? He's teaching. He's, at this point, he's at the top of his game. People, people love, love him, right? They, they are following him. They can't get enough of him. And these are the kinds of things he's, he's telling them. They're pretty radical, right? I mean, last week, for example, he completely flips happiness upside down. And he says crazy things like, happiest are those who are spiritually poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and happiest are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And, and he's got this, this long list, and it ends with, with these words. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then, it's like for us, it's been a week, but these are like, this is happening for them right, right there in that moment. We separate these things. Persecution. Oh, by the way, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And we cannot separate these metaphors from the context of persecution. 
This is kind of an aha moment for me studying this this week because I've heard those metaphors for years and years and years and I've always thought of them in the context of like, you know, so almost a triumphalistic, overly confident, salt and light, you know, we, we got this kind of thing. But first Jesus says, but wait, right? The backdrop is that it's going to be miserable, that we're going to be hated, despised, persecuted. Never, never be shocked, right? Never be surprised when Christians are marginalized, when we're mocked or laughed at or, or pushed aside by our world. We're, we're not going to be liked. That's just the assumption. But that doesn't give us license to be idiots either or just complacently passive in the way that we approach the world around us. No, we have to be salt and we have to be light. So the first thing to draw out here particularly, I think, with the salt metaphor, is that we have to be different in a good way. We have, we have to be different in a good way. And so Jesus, he starts with the metaphor of salt, and uh, we think of salt particularly in the fact that it gives flavor. It just tastes good, right? And I, I don't think it's, that it's less than that, but for them, it's so much more than that, right? Salt for them is, is life. Salt, salt is, a, is a preservative. I mean, if you, if you butchered an animal, right, in ancient culture, and you didn't want to eat the whole thing in the next couple of days... You, you had to salt it. You had to preserve it with salt. Uh, you know, meat gets gross, right? Poisonous, even. And every one of us, we've probably experienced it, right? You go to the trash can a few days after you've deboned a chicken, and it smells like death, literally, right? That's what death smells like. It's awful. And in many ways, what Jesus is saying here is that's, that's the world we live in. It smells like death. And yes, it's good and beautiful and there's much to be enjoyed and delighted and it is God's good world. He, he made it, but because of sin, because of the brokenness around us and within us, it is slowly rotting. It is decaying. I mean, we, we tend to think things are getting better, but it's, it's, it's not the way it is. In fact, scientists, right, they call it entropy. Remember this law of thermodynamics from whatever science class. You know, it's entropy. It's, it's the idea that no, nobody remembers it. Um, I get it. It's okay. But it's, it's the idea, basically, that everything falls apart, right? That's kind of entropy. It, things don't get better on their own. They get worse. Chaos always ensues. Everything decomposes. Everything, if it's going to last, needs, needs a preservative. And so Jesus says to his followers, to us, you are the salt of the earth. Us. Which means if we're actually following Jesus, if we're actually living life like he calls us to live, describes us to, in here, then we should be missed. But that's a, that's a pretty big if, isn't it? In fact, even in the verse here, I mean, you look at verse 13, right? Jesus quickly mentions that we're salt, but he kind of then goes into this assumption that many of us are not going to be nearly as salty as we should be, right? Look at, look at the whole verse. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So are we salty? In other words, are we the right kind of different? Because in order to be a preservative, salt has to be different, right? It can't be the same 
salt that stops being salty, essentially what he's saying there is salt that decays, right? Like the same thing it's trying to preserve. It just doesn't work. It's useless. And Christians who decay along with the world are also useless. They're really worse than useless, right? Thrown out and trampled on. We don't want that, right? So what is, what is the right kind of different? Well, Jesus is going to show us in this sermon. We'll, we'll take a few weeks to kind of go through exactly what he's describing, what he means by salt and light. But essentially, if you want to boil it down, it's just that we, we live differently. We, the things we love, the things we value most, they're not the same as everybody else. Everything has changed for us. Our ultimate values cannot be the same as our, as our non-Christian neighbors. They just can't. The American dream, it's not our highest ideal. The quiet, peaceful, safe, suburban life, it's not the chief end that we're created. None of, none of that is, is of highest value anymore. It can't be. I mean, honestly, here's just, just a glimmer, right, of what Jesus is getting at here with this salt and light. This is what, he, what he's going to show us in the coming weeks in just this one sermon. Let me list out a handful of them. And we saw last week that, I mean, there's a radical definition of happiness with Jesus. Everything we thought would make us happy, he's saying, well, it's, don't count on it. Uh, but these other things, if you're with me, it's, it's going to be fine. But, so, so there's that, right, already. But it, next week, right, we're going to see several things. First of all, that we're supposed to fight anger in the same way that we would try to resist murder, actually. Or even, here's something radical. Um, we don't worship sex. Uh, in, in fact, G- Jesus says that his, his kinds of people would rather gouge out an eye than be than be uh, encaptured in lust. It also says that our marriages are supposed to last because they're, they're a picture of God's love for us. He, he goes on, he, he says later, he says that we, we're not even supposed to fudge on the truth, not even a little bit, like not even a tiny bit. He, he says that we, we never retaliate those who follow him, never, not even when we're hurt. Not, a, not even people want to destroy us or kill us. Instead, we love our enemies, he says. We give to the needy simply because God sees it. Uh, we, we forgive everything from everyone because we've been forgiven. We deny ourselves legitimate things. We don't live for money or stuff anymore. It's not where our heart is, he says. We don't get anxious or worry about the same things anymore. Even real needs, real problems, it doesn't consume us. We don't live in judgment of others. I mean, that's just like, that's just a small part of this one sermon. That's what we're supposed to look like. So how are we doing? Are we any different? And again, those of you here who aren't Christians, how would you evaluate us? How salty are we? Would we be missed? Now, of course, we're, we're going to mess up, right? Jesus, Jesus knows that. He, he comes to, to die for us because of our many failures. He, he knows that. And yet, even, even there are we different, right? I mean, when we fail, do we apologize? When we mess up, do we repent? Do we name our mistakes for what they are? The way we live, is it humble? Is it gracious? Is it, is it different? And if you, if you hear all this and conclude, you know what, my lifestyle, 
my values, the things I love the most, you know what, they pretty much are the same as everybody else's. If that describes you, it's time to repent. Because the, on, the only other option that Jesus lays out is to be thrown out and trampled. It's not like a, a, like a middle way, like kind of salty, a little bit different. For him, it's, it's, it's all or nothing. But let me, let me just quickly clarify something before we move on. Because what Jesus is getting at here is the, is the right kind of different. Okay, because I think we would know there's a wrong, a wrong kind of different, right? And that's an important clarification because some Christians are just weird, right? Some of you are weird, right? You, and you know, you know some of the, these folks. I mean, the, the reality is some, some try to have a flavor all their own. It's very tempting, right? Salt doesn't have its own flavor. Salt, salt merely brings out the flavor of what it's, of what it's preserving. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not on its own. And so, frankly, for, I mean, let's, not, let's not be obnoxious. Let's not try to create our own little subculture or our own cute little language that nobody else understands, that only we speak, right? Or, or be so obsessed with maintaining power or holding on to our way of life, whatever that means, Right? Or to manipulate, or frankly, for many, right? To just sit arrogantly on our high horse judging everyone who thinks differently, who acts differently than we do. Ah, because it makes us feel so good about ourselves, right? None of that is salty. It's not the right kind of different. I mean, I love how the Apostle Paul says it. Uh, just a couple decades after uh, Jesus said these words, he, he writes this in a letter to the, the church in Colossae. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You know, for those of you who are on Facebook a lot, that might be like a good verse to like just sort of tape right to your screen, right? And let that be, let that be our guide for a while. We're to be different in a good way. Second thing here, and we see this in both metaphors, um, but Jesus draws it out uh, most specifically in the metaphor of light, that we actually have to be present in the darkness. We have to be present in the darkness. Light in scripture, right, it's a metaphor, and we still use this, right, it's not just in scripture, but just in general. Light is a, is a metaphor for what's good, for what, for what ought to be, and the metaphor of darkness is the, is the opposite, right? It's, it's the place we don't want to go. It's the things that we don't want to do or to value. And so when Jesus says to us in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And so with salt, I think the primary thing that Jesus is getting at there is that we have to be different. But with light, the primary thing he's getting at is that we have to be present we can't hide in safety or self-protection. We can't do the thing that comes naturally, right, for most of us to run towards ease and comfort. Yes, Jesus says, persecution is coming, oppression, marginalization, all of it. But instead of hiding from the darkness, we shine through the darkness like a city on a hill. Because a city on a hill doesn't have any choice. Right? They can't be like, well, let's not be so bright anymore. It just doesn't work, right? Even in the day, right? A city in that culture was typically, typically built of, of, uh, 
of limestone, which would have gleamed off in the desert sun, right? It would have shone for miles and miles around. And certainly at night, right? Not just one or two lamps, but accumulatively an entire city full of these oil lamps that would have shone for miles. I mean, even just a small example, right? We were, we were driving as a family way, way south of Kansas City recently, and Eden just observed as we were driving. She said, why is it, why is it bright out my window and dark out David's window? Because there's nothing around. You can't see anything. There's no civilization anywhere that you can see. And yet, very clearly, it was, it was, there was a huge gleam, right, in the sky out Eden's window and nothing out David's. Because out David's is his farmland, right? There's, there's nothing there. But, but out, out to the north was Kansas City. It's where we live. We could see it miles and miles away and know that's exactly what it was. I mean, even, even just look at this. This is a, a, a picture from space at night. You can find Kansas City, right? Kind of in the middle there. Um, Can you imagine what it would be if we as Christians, we as the church, could shine so brightly in such a dark world? I mean, imagine, imagine what, what that would do, not, not out of arrogance or, or triumphalism, but out of, out of grace and hope. City on a hill, Jesus says, cannot be hidden, nor would, nor would anyone, he basically said, nor would anyone in their right mind like light a lamp and then hide it. It just doesn't make sense. Why would you possibly do that? It doesn't, nobody. And the trouble is, plenty of Christians are just too afraid to let it shine. We're, just, we're too worried. What's going to happen, right? We're too afraid for our kids. I'm too afraid sometimes for my kids. We're too afraid of what, what others might say or do or, or how this might change the, the way people perceive me or understand me or, or the, my opportunities at, at work or at school. All of, right? We, just, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my distance. And in our fears, we assume the problems are too big and the darkness is just too overwhelming. And so here's the question. Do we run from or run to the darkness? Which is it going to be? Let me give an example. That's a little bit silly, but that's okay. Um, I'm just going to go with the assumption that by this point, everybody here has seen the new Star Wars movie. Um, and if you haven't, that's your own stupid fault, frankly. Um, <laughs> I'll try not to give any spoilers, but you're on your own, okay? Um, but, but essentially, right, there's, there's, if you know the story, because we all know the story, uh, there's two main characters, right, two new sort of main characters. You've got, you've got Finn on the one hand, and you've got Ray, Ray on the other. And, and Finn, Finn will do anything to avoid the problems, Right? And he runs, right? He wants, he wants to hide. He's, he knows what's at in the dark side and he doesn't want anything to do with it. And so he will do, it doesn't matter who he hurts, who he disappoints, what happens to him as long as he can get away from it and do anything to protect himself. And then, and then you have Ray, right? This sort of unknowing young Jedi. He knows exactly what she has to do, regardless of how much it's going to cost, no matter what the pain is for her. And we see this, and yeah, I know, it's just a movie, right? But we all know, right, when we watch it, who we want to be in that story. Nobody wants to be Finn, right? Nobody wants to be the guy who just says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go do my own, I'm going to hide, I'm going to protect myself, I'm going to keep mine safe. Nobody wants to be that person. And frankly, in a world like ours, I mean, just think about what's at stake, Think about the darkness in our world, racism and oppression and poverty and slavery. Think, think about politics and education and healthcare. And, you know, what, what are the issues? What, where's the darkness in your neighborhood? Kids, where's it at in your school? 
Where's it at at work? People, Christians run to the problems. We run to the decay. We run into the darkness, not, not out of it. Even if, even if you're to study like the early church, this is, this is so fascinating to me. This guy, sociologist Rodney Stark, he did this, this study um, on, on how the church exploded in the first century to the point that there's like Christians everywhere on every continent and has been for so many years. And one, one of the key reasons that he found is when the plagues hit, everybody else left the cities. Everybody. Even like family members would abandon their own and leave, but the Christians stayed. And they didn't just care for their own sick, they cared for the sick of others, even to the cost of their own life. And as a result, so many realized this, maybe there's something better. Maybe this is the way. People, we run. We run in, not out. We run to, not from. We can't can't hide from the pains in our world. You know, it's one of the reasons why we're, we're hosting this this evening in a couple of weeks here, you can find information about in your, in your note sheet, this, this night caring for refugees, uh, trying to explore what, is it, what does it look like? This, this is an area of, of great darkness in our lives, in our world, and we cannot simply view it through a political lens. We cannot simply view it through a nationalistic lens. We have to say, what, what would Jesus call us to do? We are his people, and that, that is our final authority. He is the one who makes us safe. He is the the one who makes us significant. He is the one who gives us everything that we need. And he is the one that at the end of the day, we radiate forth his light. When it comes to hard issues, are we going to put our head in the sands? Are we just going to wash our hands and think, well, that's their problem. It's not my problem. I don't live in that neighborhood, right, of Kansas City. My kids don't go to those schools, right? And so I I I can just slide it away and think, I'm, I'm doing just fine. And it sounds like I'm harping on you. It's because, frankly, it's because I, I just feel so lousy when I think about this stuff. Because I, I know myself. I love, I love the comfortable. I run to the easy, right? I'm, I'm more like Finn than Ray, I guarantee you. If you looked at my life, that's what you would say. But Jesus calls us to so much more beyond self-interest and self-protection, out of the safety, out of what's comfortable. I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer... For example, one of my, one of my heroes, he was a, a pastor who was executed in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany for being light in a, in a, in a really dark place, right? But before he died, this is what he said. He said, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. That can't be the church. And, and really, Jesus hasn't even given us an option here, Right? We're kind of talking as if we have a choice in here, but he knows we're going to be persecuted, oppressed, opposed, right? He knows it's going to be hard. And he just says, well, this is just who you are. You are. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And so do the people in your life, even when it's uncomfortable or awkward or weird, do they know? Do they know that you follow Jesus, that he defines your reality and your identity, that your hopes, your values, they belong to him, not to anything else? Do the people know that, right? Or even a small thing, like when's the last time you've invited somebody to church? Or even as, as you look at your, your life, your, your spheres of influence, the places where you have um, influence, um, where are you mending what's broken? Where are you bringing even just a glimmer of light in the darkness? Now, now hold up for a second here. Because some of you might be hearing this and think, actually, this is exactly what you're saying. This is why Christians are the problem. 
because we think we're the ultimate salt, right? We, we are the light. We're a bunch of uh, Jedis, and we sound cocky because we're going to take over the world and fix everything, and it's all about us anyway, and, you know, you're welcome world kind of, kind of attitude. And it, it is true. Some Christians do respond in that way. But that's not what these metaphors are getting at. I mean, just as not enough salt or light uh, is deeply ineffective, right? Uh, the opposite is also true. So is too much. I mean, and you know it, right? When you're laying in bed and there's a light in the hallway and it's just shining in, you know, it just drives you crazy. It's too much, right? Or or you dump out too much salt on your food. It can quickly, you can take a beautiful steak and it can get disgusting and like, you know, just a little bit too much. Similarly, when we we respond with arrogance or triumphalism, self-centeredness, some of us, some of us need to be, stop being obnoxious, overpowering, self-focused. This is not what Jesus is saying which is why this, this final observation is just so important for us. Uh, so we have to be different in a good way. We have to be present in the darkness. And last, we have to be together in his name. Together in his name. None of this can be about us. If it's about us, then we're in big trouble, right? Um, nor, nor can we view it primarily through individualistic terms, because otherwise we really are part of the problem. And we know historically there are plenty of examples when the church, when Christians have been part of the problem, But Jesus says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And here in this this place, he's talking to a community of people. Like we don't see it in our our language, right? But all these pronouns are plural, right? He's not talking to individuals. He's talking to a collective. And even the metaphors are collective, right? Because what good is a a grain of salt on its own? It's not going to do much, right? And he, even though we wrote a, a, a silly little song about it, somebody did somewhere, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but your light by itself is super lame, right? It's just not enough. But together, collectively, as a people called out to live this different, unique, radical life, it's got to be something we do together. Uh, the local church. We know it's not perfect. Believe me, we, we know, right? Sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes it's boring. Sometimes it's ineffective. Sometimes it really is part of the problem. Some of you experience that in your own stories, and it's, it can be painful. But the reality is, there's hope here. And where else in our world today can you find hope? And we have that to offer to ourselves and to the world around us. Through radical service, that's what it's going to take. Through, frankly, ridiculous generosity, that's, that's what it's going to take. And the institutions that we serve in our, in our own families, you, you are the church. And so it's not, even, even if you hear this like, well, it's, it's about us and these walls, that's not it at all, right? You are the church in your, in your neighborhood. That's who you are. And kids, in your schools, you, you're the church there in that place. And work everything that we touch, everything that we do, and we do so with humility and grace. We have to. It's not about us. It's not about me. Do we, do we see the bigger picture? I mean, he says there again, right? So that they may see your good works. Again, you have to actually do good works. And they have to be visible, right? right? And give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Because ultimately, it's Jesus who is the salt, Right? I mean, he, he is the one who doesn't just preserve 
right? He doesn't just stop the, the decay from moving forward, but actually brings redemption. And he's the ultimate light of the world. We're, we're just the moon. We don't have any light on our own, right? We've, we've got nothing. We're as, we're as dark as anything, and yet we have the joy, the privilege of, of reflecting him back to a world stuck in perpetual night. Now maybe, maybe, maybe you hear this and you think, you know, I, I, I can't do this. It's not for me. Either, either it's because you just don't want to be different, right? It's just, this is too hard. I'd rather, I'd rather love the same things that everybody else loves. I'd, I'd rather give my life. I want to be safe and I want to be comfortable. And I understand that. Or, or maybe you hear this and think, oh, I, I can't do this because I just don't think it's really going to do anything, right? Maybe you've tried. Maybe you've, you've seen uh, failure along the way. You know, are your coworkers really going to care about Jesus? Are your neighbors really going to be interested? But friends, um, Jesus was salt and light for you. And we can't forget that. He's done this work already in you. I mean, if you're his follower, he, he has come to this earth, entering into our world to preserve humanity, but more than that, to actually redeem us, to give us hope and, and a new life, that he's died for, for all of our failures, every one of our inadequacies, all those things that hold us down. And he's, he's the true light, not just not just a city on a hill, but he's building for himself. He promises to bring a new city, a city where there is no darkness, where there, where there will be no decay. And there'll be hope and joy with him forever. Which, which means there's no place too dark. There's no situation too far gone. And the crazy thing about this passage, it's, it's less of a command and more of a promise. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. God, help us be faithful. Let's pray. God, there is so much about this that overwhelms me. Our failures, first off, my failures, God, in the way that I um, would much rather run towards comfort and ease and safety. God, I'm also overwhelmed just by the daunting task that it is and thinking about all that's decaying and all the darkness, God, and the potential for hope. God, it overwhelms me. But God, I think most of all, I'm overwhelmed that you would use us. <laughs> despite the failures, despite how big the task is, you still call us as your people, your church, to be your body and to be salt and light in this world. God, give us humility please give us grace. God, I pray that we would do exactly what you would do if you were physically here with us. God, I pray that we would live out your ideals, that your values would be ours, and that we would see change in our world. Bring revival. But God, would you please, please start with us?